Now, good evening. It is a big encouragement to see you all. Thank you for coming. And uh, we trust the Lord will give the help that we need tonight. I started the day in New Brunswick, and at lunchtime I was in Maine, and by mid-afternoon I was in Pennsylvania, and now I'm back in New Jersey. So as I was driving up, I thought, well, the Apostle Paul must have been this way. Because I remember reading that he said he had learned that in whatsoever state he was, therewith to be content. So now we're in the great state of New Jersey, and we trust the Lord will give us help. We're going to read, by way of introduction, in the end of Ephesians and chapter 3, please. Ephesians and chapter 3. It's, uh, the verse I'm interested in is part of one of Paul's prayers in this epistle. So we'll uh, read for the context from verse 14 of Ephesians in chapter 3. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, and to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Delightful prayer. And it's this last verse, verse 21, that will interest us, I trust, through the week. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. And note, it is throughout all ages world without end. Amen. And we, by grace, are part of that church that Paul's prayer and desire, guided by the Spirit of God, was that through this church and in this church there will be glory to God by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages. So now you and I are part of something which is for the eternal and everlasting glory of God. I would like, as the Lord gives me help, to not just refresh our memories, we should do that. Peter says, stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, but I don't just want to stir up your, your, your thoughts in that sense, but I want to trace back, in some degree, in our Bibles, where the principles of our gathering, the principles of the local expression of this church, Uh, really have their origins. I suppose if we spoke to some people, depending on their teaching and uh, appreciation of the Word of God, and we might say to them, now, why are you in this local assembly or the local assembly where it is that you gather? And uh, it might be for a variety of reasons. It might simply be that you are in a local assembly of Christians because you were born into Uh, a Christian home, your parents attended the assembly, and in the goodness of God, over time, you have grown up, you have been saved yourself, and baptized and added to the company. You're just where, in that sense, mum and dad have always gone. It might be that uh, the way the saints gather in a local assembly appeals to you more than perhaps some other place. There might be a variety of reasons. 
And then if we said, well, you know, how important are the principles upon which we gather? Because many would suggest today, and in fairness, I see their viewpoint, there would be those who would say today, surely a lot of the things we believe and practice tend to be divisive. I mean, if the Bible teaches that every believer in the Lord Jesus is a child of God and we're all equally children of God, then um, if we're all part of that one body, then shouldn't we practice that? And the fact that some people don't see the things the way that we see them, should that be a hindrance to them coming amongst us? So, So very relevant, genuine, practical reasons are raised and questions are raised. So we want to just look back into the Word of God and say now, the, what is the purpose of a local assembly? Where from are its principles derived? What, what, on what basis do we do the things that we do? So that, God willing, we, we are in a local assembly. It might not be the case now. We would trust in the kindness of God. It might be at the end of these meetings. That, that we would be in a local assembly of God's people seeing the thing for what it is, understanding the principles of it, seeing the preciousness of those things to God, and valuing the privilege and the honor of gathering to the Lord in the way that the Word of God teaches. One of the great cries, certainly in my home country, when we're seeking to persuade people uh, as to the truth of New Testament teaching, Um, it might be dear friends who once gathered with us and they don't do any more. They found things a bit too restrictive. We must never be so proud, you know, as to feel that there's never any fault on, on the side of an assembly when folks leave. Sometimes, sadly, folks leave not so much uh, because they don't agree with the principles of the thing, but maybe the way those principles are not taught. Maybe if they just think all it is is uh, somebody's preferences, somebody's tradition. We must never be so proud as to think that there's never fault on those who seek to observe these things. But we want to look beyond those things. We, we, we want to be positive about this. And we want to say, well, what does the Word of God teach? And not just to go back to a point in time. There would be those who uh, look upon uh, local assemblies who gather in the way that I judge most of us do. And they say, well, of course, that just goes back to... Uh, a time in the mid-19th century. And um, <clears throat> these folks, the Plymouth Brethren, they began, and they're rather quaint, and uh, it's a bit all old-fashioned, and, well, they've just got their way of doing things. Well, I, it so happens, I was brought up amongst the Brethren in Plymouth. I was born there. Uh, but, but I've never been with the Plymouth Brethren. Because one of the things we'll learn through the week is, is that there's a good reason why we don't adopt a name or a title, which, which for many would seem to be a convenient thing to do. But there are reasons, biblical reasons, why we wouldn't do that. So we want to explore the Word of God. We want to do so honestly and genuinely. There are perhaps features of assembly witness today which, in that fairness, we must say, don't bear a lot of scrutiny when it comes to Scripture. There are things that we do or don't do which are not specifically there in Scripture, but nevertheless are a wise application of principles that are in the Bible. So now let me be very, very straight. I'm not here this week to beat a drum for brethrenism or any other ism. But with God's help, we're here to explore the Word of God and see that God's purpose for the church in its entirety is that unto him there will be glory 
for all the ages, world without end. Amen. So we're part of something which is of God and which he intends to be for his glory. Now, I think an audience like this will have been well enough taught to know that the, the letter to the Ephesians is dealing specifically with the church in its entirety. There is probably one reference to the local church, and that's at the end of chapter 2. So in the epistle that deals uh, with the church uh, in its entirety, that is, the body of Christ, from Pentecost, when it was formed, until the Lord comes to the air, the church being complete and takes it home to glory. The Ephesian epistle looks at that entire church. But, but there is that one reference at the end of chapter 2 to the local assembly. Uh, in a similar way, when you read the first Corinthian letter, that letter is all about the local expression of this church as it's described in the Ephesian epistle. So, so there it is in its fullness in Ephesians. And then God says, now, I, I want that, that entire thing to find a local expression so that the character of the whole thing is the character of the local thing as well. So, in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter particularly, it's all about the local assembly, how that local expression of the whole great truth of the Ephesian epistle should be expressed. And interestingly, in that uh, letter that deals with the local assembly, there is one reference to the church in its entirety. And that's uh, a reference you would find in chapter 12 and verse 13. And Paul speaks there about the fact that in one spirit were we all baptized into one body. And there's a reference to the entire church of which we are a part. So we are, as far as the body of Christ is concerned, we are organically linked to brethren like Paul the Apostle and Peter and all those early saints and early martyrs. We are organically linked with them. There is one body, the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of it. The end of Ephesians chapter 1 would teach us that. And again, interestingly, when we read in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says over and over again, that, that the, the, the design of this church, the concept for it, the origin of it, is all in the heart of God. And over and again, he says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So the glory of the invisible God and the glory of the eternal God is invested in this great uh, organism for that's what the church is it's not an organization it's an organism it's a living thing it's a body it has a head and it has vitality and just as we can appreciate those things in the physical realm so it is in the spiritual and in this great epistle from which we have read uh, Paul will point out that that as the individuals who constitute this church, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before God displayed his glory in a created universe, in those divine councils, as we often refer to them, in those divine councils, when there was nothing in existence but God, and he is eternally existent. That in the three persons who constitute the one being of God, there were deliberations that, that there would be, in a universe yet to be created, there would be this entity called the church. Now, if that's beyond your capacity to conceive, to contemplate at the end of a hard day, well, you're in good company. I mean, none of us, none of us can really conceive the vastness of this. We simply have what the Word of God tells us. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
It was for the praise of his glory. And it was so that God might have, in a world yet to be created, ultimately, something that was uniquely and organically associated with his beloved son. So, well, they have an expression back home. I, I'm English, but I live in Scotland, have done for a lot of years now. And uh, the Scots have a little expression about some of these kind of truths, and they, they say they're better felt than telt. You know, they're just, they're the kind of things that it's difficult to put words around. But a few minutes of meditation and contemplation, the Spirit of God begins to fill the heart with the greatness and the magnitude of these things. You, my brother, you, my beloved sister, by grace are now part of something which was conceived in the heart of God as a priority over creation itself. And it's, go, it's going to go on beyond the extent of this world and this universe. The, the universe in which we live, for all its greatness, is finite. There was, a, there was a moment when it began. There is a moment when it will all be dissolved in readiness for something of a completely new kind to be made. And the church was before it in the heart of God. And the church will be beyond it, practically living and existing for the praise of his glory. So to be a part of that, to have been chosen by God to be a part of that, is something tremendous. It's a great thing to be saved, yes. It's a great thing since sin came into the world and, and God uh, manifested this wonderful way of salvation, uh, a righteousness which is by faith. It's a great thing to be saved and it's a great thing to know deliverance from sin and its guilt and to know that we won't face the horrors of a lost eternity. That's all wonderful. Praise God for it all. But, but in one sense, see beyond it. See, see the divine purpose in it. God's purpose in saving you was not simply to deliver your soul from hell. One of his purposes, according to the first chapter of, of the letter of Paul to the Galatians, as we saw, I think, here, was, was that we might be delivered from this present evil age that we might be sanctified unto him. So he wants a people to live for him today. But he also wants a people for his glory for eternity. So wonderful though it is to be saved, and we can't, we can't overstate the wonder of that, nevertheless at the same time that salvation was, well to use the words of uh, the apostles in Acts chapter 15, as they debated the whole matter of... Um, of God moving out in grace to the Gentiles, these, these Jewish men like Peter and Paul and James and the others, they were all meeting together and kind of scratching their heads and saying, well, we can't deny that God is doing a great work amongst the Gentiles. And then they realized that in this age in which we live, God is calling out from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He's not just saving men and women who richly deserve to be eternally punished. That would be wonderful if that's all it was. But he's not only doing that. He's doing something for himself. He's doing something for the glory of his own name. And you're involved in it. So, The glory of God is inextricably linked with the house. We know that the local expression of this church, of which the Ephesian epistle speaks, the local expression of it, the assembly of which you are a part, the, uh, that local assembly has the character of God's house. Now, God's house in days past, well, the first time you read of it, 
which is in Genesis 28, it didn't have any form. None at all. Remember that great occasion when Jacob dreamed and, and uh, had that dream concerning the way he cast up to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending around the Son of Man. And when he awoke from that dream, he was in a state of terror and holy fear and awe. And he said, surely God is in this place, and I knew it not. He said, this is none other than the house of God. But there was nothing there. There was no building. It was just Jacob and the ruins of the city of Luz where he had spent that night and uh, a bit of scrub and desert. There, there was absolutely nothing there. Yet Jacob says, this is the house of God. And in that first mention of the house of God in Scripture, we learn this, that, that the, the key feature, the key principle the essential element of God's house is God's presence. God is here, Jacob said, and I knew it not. So God doesn't need, for his house, a physical structure. He doesn't need it. But there came a time in Exodus 25 when he said to Moses, uh, now speak to the people and let them Build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. So now for the first time, uh, the, the house of God was going to take on a physical form. And uh, because of that first principle of Genesis 28, it won't be the house of God in actual fact until the presence of God is there. So there's going to be a structure and... Um, the reason why we have, on occasions, uh, rich ministry concerning the tabernacle in the wilderness. The reason why we have that ministry and need that ministry is because God is, is now adding to the volume of Scripture and adding to the volume of our knowledge. He's adding detail about his house. It's not just about his presence. We would have learned that in Genesis 28. But the fact that his presence and his glory are displayed in Christ. That's the lesson, the key lesson, that the tabernacle is teaching us. Which is why the... Uh, the seven items of furniture and all the different furnishings and the structure and the procedures and even the very way in which it was provided for and everything else, all those details about the tabernacle are, are the Spirit of God amplifying God's revelation about his house. It's not just a place of his presence, but it's a place where God is manifested, his glory is seen, and his glory is displayed in Christ. That would be why John used the word tabernacle when he said of the Lord Jesus that the word of God was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God's house, associated with glory, but that glory is not just some kind of uh, radiance. It is centered in a person. It's centered in Christ. So that the invisible God, now in the tabernacle, is declaring himself pictorially and symbolically through things that speak of Christ. But maybe we've jumped ahead of ourselves. What about creation itself? If we were to go back to Psalm number 19, that lovely psalm tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. So God has made a declaration when he made the heavens and the earth, God has made, in the very order and the structure of the things that he's made, he's made a declaration about his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
Now, of course, they do declare his creatorial power. So that to look at the glory of creation, whether in the macro, the vastness of space and so forth, or whether it's the micro, and, and we look through a microscope at something wonderful, there is no doubt that these things tell us about the existence and the creatorial power of an intelligent God of design. They tell us more. And we're not left to our own devices to wonder what else they tell us. Paul tells us. So when he's talking in Romans chapter 1, when he's building up his doctrinal argument to show that the whole world is guilty before God, and every mouth is stopped, uh, we could understand him telling us how the Jew has failed under law, and we could perhaps understand him uh, speaking about the fact that the Gentile has by and large lapsed into idolatry. But he doesn't begin with those. He doesn't begin with the Jew. He doesn't begin with the idolater. He simply begins with man and the testimony of creation. Listen to what he says. He says that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and all the ungodliness of men. There is well-deserved wrath poised to fall upon godless men. Why? Well, he says, because of this. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. In other words, creation is not just about the witness to an awesome God of infinite power who can make something out of nothing. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So invisible things, which can't be seen because they're invisible, are clearly seen. So the very, the very things that God has created, they take invisible things and they explain them. They take invisible things and they make them plain. So it's not just a case of we look at the, uh, a lovely frosty night and we look at the myriad stars and all these kind of things and we say, well, a God who can make all that is wonderful. Well, that's true. It is. But, but that's supposed to draw us in to make us then think of the character and the nature and the purpose of that design with all that God has done. Sadly, in many ways, man with all his technological progress, in inverted commas, has denied himself that kind of witness. For example, um, in this part of the United States where you live, uh, even on that lovely starry, frosty night, you haven't got any chance at all of really witnessing the glory of the heavens. There's that much light pollution, and there's that much atmospheric pollution, that really what you see might be lovely, but you're not seeing the glory of the heavens at all. Uh, a couple of times in my life, I've had that privilege. Um, in my secular work, I, I was in the uh, British Air Force for some years. And early on in, in that career, I was uh, occasionally out on the, some of the remote islands in the Indian Ocean. And um, that's where I first witnessed the glory of the heavens. But the time I witnessed it most was, um, you might recall that back in 1982, was it, uh, the Argentinians, they invaded um, British territory down uh, in the Falkland Islands. And um, we quietly remained grateful for the help we had from Uncle Sam, uh, for we needed it. And um, while we were 
uh, busy trying to reclaim those islands, then uh, the USAF were ferrying all the materials we needed in and out on a daily basis. But we were, I was at that time, um, based on Ascension Island, right down in the South Atlantic, the nearest land about 2,000 miles away. And at night, um, we had the whole place blacked out because uh, at that time we didn't know where one of the Argentinian submarines was and we didn't know if they were going to try and land special forces. If they could take out the airfield at Ascension Island, it would, it would have been game over. So uh, the, the whole place was in lockdown and, and the lights were all off. So um, <clears throat> one particular night, I and my crew, we, we came back from, a, uh, from a, a mission and we just went down onto the beach to just to relax a bit. Well, I've never, ever in my life seen anything like it. There was no light pollution, no atmospheric pollution. And when we looked into the heavens, there, there was just simply layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of stars. It just seemed to go back into infinity. We, we had a, a, a chap on the crew, a fellow on the crew, he was, we, we all thought he was really old. He was probably about 40. And um, he was a kind of miserable, cantankerous, Again, the Scots have got a great word. It doesn't need explaining. Canaptious. He was just a canaptious old kind of a guy. If there was something cynical to be said, something to spoil the moment, he would have been the man to think of it. Do you know, it silenced him. <coughs> He'd got nothing to say. Uh, and as we, as we either stood, sat, or lay on the beach and just looked into the heavens... It was overwhelming. And, and the one thing that we all agreed on, and th this, was, this was interesting, the one thing that we all agreed on was that the, though the only sound we could hear was the waves lapping on the shore, <coughs> it was as though the heavens were shouting at us. That sounded kind of weird, you know, because, well, to shout is to make a sound, isn't it? But then you see, Psalm 19 says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And the psalmist says there isn't a language in the earth where their voice isn't understood. See, if there's a declaration in words, then uh, <clears throat> ever since Genesis chapter 11, any declaration in words will only reach a part of the world population. Depends what language the declaration is in. But he said that the, the language of the heavens, when they declare the glory of God, the language of the heavens is not in words. It's in the sheer majestic glory of all that God called into being. And it silences men. It does. We've robbed ourselves of that in this Western society with all the pollution, light and, and atmospheric pollution and everything else. So, well, there might be some places where out here you can get to the top of a mountain or something and appreciate something of it. I tell you, when you see it, it makes a profound impression upon the soul. Now, of course, all these limitations that I've just spoken about, light pollution and so forth, they're very recent in Earth's history. Very recent. It's the last couple of centuries or so. So for the vast bulk of the last 6,000 years, there has been a tremendously eloquent testimony to the glory of God. And it's the heaven. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth forth his handiwork. There isn't a place, the psalmist says, in the earth where it hasn't reached. There isn't a language where it's not understood. There has been a global witness and moreover, says Paul to the Romans, God has given man the capacity to understand that. See, God never ever, at any time, has set man a riddle. God has never ever posed a puzzle and said to man in his fallen condition, see if you can solve that and you'll find me. Not at all. When you manifest something, you make it clear. And God has declared himself in the vastness of the glory of creation. 
That is why, if you're under any doubt at all, the heathen are lost. It's nothing to do with whether they have heard the gospel that we preach or not. They're lost. And the reason why they're lost is because there is a universal gospel as far as Revelation 14 is concerned. There is a universal gospel. The angel immediately launches into a paean of praise to God the Creator. And the universal gospel surely is that declaration of God, whether it be in the heavens, in the macro thing, or whether it be in the minutiae of earth. Do you like reading Psalm 139? You maybe need reminding what's in it. Well, look at it. Look at Psalm 139. We're thinking about how God witnesses and demonstrates his glory. And, and just in case you're not sure what direction this is going in, as we think about local assembly truth, we must necessarily think about the gospel we preach. And one of the things I want you to see is that the gospel of the grace of God that we preach is the culmination of many different revelations that God has given of himself to man. Each has a purpose. Now, when you come to Psalm 139, a wonderful psalm about the, 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 the greatness of God, a psalm of David, and um, the first six verses of it are all about the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. The word simply means, omni means all, and, and the word science follows it, knowledge. So, so it means an all-knowing God, the omniscience of God. He's a God who knows the end, from the beginning. doesn't just mean he can tell the two things apart, but, but when he begins something, he knows what the end's going to be. You and I don't, but, but he does. So he's, he's omniscient. He knows all things. And that's the psalmist's point in the first six verses of this psalm. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off and so forth. It's all about the omniscience of God. That's one of the necessary attributes of an infinite and eternal God. If he's not omniscient, he isn't God. He has to be by definition. So, so this is about the omniscience of God. It's one of those fundamental attributes of God. He is omniscient. He knows all things. The next essential attribute of an eternal God, such as the God, the living God in whom we believe and whom we worship, the second essential attribute is that he must be omnipresent. Not just knowing all things, but he must pervade all things. He must be, in that sense, as spirit, he is in all places at all times. His omnipresence. What does the psalmist say? Verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. And so on. So verses 7 to 12 of that psalm are all about God's omnipresence. The third great attribute of deity, of a living, eternal, glorious God, he's not only omniscient and knows all things, he's not only omnipresent and is in all places at all times, but he is omnipotent. That is, he has all strength and all power. There is nothing that he cannot do there is nothing that is beyond him that is in keeping with his own character. There are certain things God cannot do. And Paul speaks of one of them to Titus in the opening of his letter to Titus, and he speaks of God who cannot lie. He cannot lie. 
Now, that's one of the things God can't do. And the reason why he can't do it is it's contrary to his character. So anything that's in keeping with the holy and righteous character of God, he can do. He is omnipotent. So, very clearly, the psalmist in the first six verses of Psalm 139, he's spoken about the omniscience of God. Thou knowest all things. Mine uprising, my down sitting. Then he speaks about God's omnipresence. Doesn't matter where I go. God is there. So now, we would say, David, you're going to tell us about the omnipotence of God. And surely when you tell us about the omnipotence of God, David, you're going to go back to your experience as a shepherd boy on the hills of Judah. And you're going to be able to tell us, as you did perhaps say in Psalm 29 or something like that, as you saw that great storm sweeping in over the Mediterranean Ocean, uh, over the Mediterranean Sea, and coming around those northern countries and over Turkey and then coming down through Syria. And, and as you described that storm and you spoke about the voice of the Lord, it was wonderful, David. So now, doubtless, you're going to go back to your shepherd days and you're going to tell us how you, you sat on the hills in Judah, you looked into those dark, dark skies that were that were just bejeweled with the stars that God had made. You're going to take us, aren't you, David, into the massive depths of the infinitude of space. And David says, no, actually, I'm not. No. No. I'm going to tell you about the glory of God. I'm going to tell you, he says, about the omnipotence of God, the power of God. But he says, I'm not going to take you into the infinite depths of space. He says, I'm going to take you into the darkness and the quietness and the stillness of the womb. I'm going to tell you how a baby's formed. That's what he does. That's what he does in Psalm 139. He says in verse 13... For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Thou hast possessed my reins. The, the, the references to this particular Hebrew word in the Old Testament, they're mostly to do with buying and owning. They're, they're, it's a word to do with property. Thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I wonder, I wonder how many babes have been aborted and lost their life in this week in the U.S., in the U.K. The last figures I saw they run at round about a thousand lives a week. That is, infants that are aborted where there is absolutely no medical emergency. There's no medical emergency. <clears throat> the, 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 the fetus is not in distress, the mother's not in distress, she's not ill. It's just inconvenient. You imagine, you imagine, if every week, week after week, there were jumbo jets full of school kids falling out of the sky, four or five a week, almost one a day, four or five hundred children, almost every day that you breathe, wiped out in some desperate accident. Imagine the horror. Imagine the tears. Imagine the uproar. That's going on in our society all the time. See, as Christians, we ought to understand what life is about. I don't mean for one second that we should be on the streets with placards and protesting. That we don't do that. For good biblical reason, we don't do that. But nevertheless, as believers and as, as, as those who have the word of God in our hands, we ought to have very, very firm biblical views about this. The first man ever born was Cain. 
And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4 you read, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And if you would take the trouble to look at the uh, Hebrew construction of that verse, you will find that it is it's a singular act. She conceived and bare Cain. She didn't just conceive and call the resulting child Cain. He was Cain when he was conceived. See that? She conceived and bare as one act. Cain. So the very moment, the very moment a life is conceived in a womb, it doesn't matter how casually on the part of the parents, it doesn't matter how wickedly, the very moment a life is conceived in the womb, a never dying soul is registered in heaven. God has a book of life. Moses said that he was willing to be blotted out of that for the sake of the people. There is a book of life. Every soul, every soul that ever was conceived from Genesis 4 onwards, God registers. And, and we as Christians and we as Bible believers should understand that not be drawn in to the way in which this modern society in which we live thinks so lightly and so callously so that the experts, so-called, will tell us that, well, personality doesn't begin until, what is it, 24 weeks or something like that? So that's the opinion of experts. The Word of God says, from the moment of conception, there's a divine work being done. And it might, be, it might be the most casual thing amongst two immoral people. It might be the most uh, disgusting acts of people in a drunken state. It doesn't matter. Every conception is precious to God. Every soul registered in heaven. Look how the psalmist speaks of it. Thou hast possessed me, a divine possession... Thou hast covered me and protected me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, on the surface of it, we, we could look, uh, a dear brother uh, I'm in fellowship uh, with at home, in our home assembly, he once described it like this. Um, uh, wonderfully made would perhaps refer to the physical organs, the, the, the capabilities, the hands. I mean, which of us hasn't held a little baby? And you've looked at the tiny, tiny little wee fingers and the toes and you've thought of the bones and the blood vessels and, and we've wondered. So he says, well, you know, the, it's, it's a wonderful thing, but, but the mind is a fearful thing, maybe. Well, that's, that's a nice thought, you know, on, on the surface of it. But, but then you, you, you just lift your concordance on one or two other books and have a little study of it. And, and now, now here's, a, here's a, an, an exact interpretation of these words. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I was made to be reverent and set apart. I was made to be God-fearing and set apart. Set apart to whom? Set apart to God. See, we, when we think of the fall, when we think of sin coming into the world, we often major on what man lost and what man forfeited. But what about God? When, when sin entered into the world, what, what, what it revolved around, obviously this, this devil came with subtlety, but the act itself revolved around the theft of fruit that belonged to God. He said to Adam, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat of it. It's not yours, Adam, that's mine. It's not for you. So, so the first sin involved men stealing fruit that belonged to God. 
And that's what God has lost in the fall. Fruit from man's lives. It's true on a personal basis because the psalmist says here the, the, in the purpose of God a conception is so that that child that is formed might be reverent and set apart for him. That that, that, that little life might be God-fearing and sanctified to the glory of God. Of course, fallen man doesn't think like that and fallen man doesn't live like that. So in every, in every sinful life Written above it all, you could just write fruitlessness. Nothing for God there at all. It's true individually. It was true nationally of the nation of Israel. Luke chapter 13 tells us about that. In, in that parable the Lord Jesus taught of a man who had a vineyard, and in that vineyard he planted a fig tree. And he came looking for fruit, and there was none. A fruitless nation. And God has been robbed, and systematically robbed, down all through these centuries, because he's looking for fruit in the lives of men and women, and there's none for him. And there's only one way they can become fruitful, and that's through the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So, one of the things we'll need to think about is how that fruitfulness is manifest in a local church, which is made up of Christians, who have once been unfruitful, and now become fruitful. That's why children are called the fruit of the womb. Fruit begets fruit, you see. That's, it, it's supposed to be for the honor and for the glory of God. Okay, verse 14 again. Marvelous are thy works, that my soul knoweth right well. My substance, my frame, my bone structure was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. My frame. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought. See, that, that's the word that's used six times in Exodus about the wise women and their needlework in the fabric of the tabernacle. Curiously wrought. Can you see those dear women? And they've got the purple, uh, the blue and the purple and the scarlet. And they've got the gold wire that's been beaten out. Uh, and can you see them how meticulously and carefully they're sewing into the veil, those cherubim, and how that beautiful tapestry of the veil is beginning to take shape and all the wonder and the glory of what's being woven into it is coming out. And the psalmist says that's, that's the formation of a child in the womb. Every moment, every minute, every hour, as that gestation period continues and a divine hand is weaving Curious needlework. And uh, he describes it as being in the lowest parts of the earth. See, there's only, I think, one other time when that would be mentioned, that expression. And uh, <clears throat> we read in Ephesians chapter 3. But if I read to you in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, you would find that that same expression in Ephesians chapter 4, it's in that parenthetic section of verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? That's the expression, isn't it? So you see, what, what, what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is, if, if, the, if the ascension of Christ, if, if the risen man taking humanity into heaven, if that's a glorious thing, and it is, it's made the more glorious by the fact that he first of all descended into the lowest parts of the earth. Someone has described it like this, the antechamber of the virgin's womb. My dear brother, my dear sister, the Lord Jesus was formed like this as the psalmist describes in Psalm 139. The Lord Jesus was being formed like this. He, he wasn't an implanted body in a surrogate womb. He, he was supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit, and the rest of his gestation and preparation in the womb of his mother was as natural as yours and mine. 
Oh, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in flesh. And so he speaks about the lowest parts of the earth. And then he says, Thine eyes did see my substance. Uh, It means the thought of everything being rolled together. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being not imperfect, but unperfect. Not yet complete. They're being formed. And in thy book... A word which in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 5 is translated register. In thy register all my members were recorded. This is mighty. This is mighty. It means my beloved sister who has borne a child or perhaps in the goodness of God one day will bear a child. There is something going on in the womb which prefigures, it prefigures Christ and the church. It prefigures the whole great purpose of God in the eternal glory of the church. God is going to have eternal glory through the church. And and in creation, he's giving illustration. He's giving illustration so that we might understand more of what he's doing for his glory in the church. So that, so that the, the expectation of the birth of a child, which in normal family circumstances is a cause for joy, in the expectation of that child, as that infant grows in the womb, the cells are being multiplied. And the psalmist says, and, and please, this isn't, this isn't man in his ignorance 4,000 years ago. This is a man writing by the Spirit of God. This is as up-to-date as it can be. This is the Spirit of God speaking to us through David. And he says, In thy register all my members were recorded, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. And if you have a margin in your Bible, such as I have, it will tell you, It means what days they should be fashioned. Think of an eye. Or the mechanics of a little finger. Or any of the other organs. Or the wonder, the whole complexity and wonder of the body. Any of you, dear brethren or sisters, a project manager? We're not being irreverent, but David is worshipping and praising here the divine project manager, who, as that child is being formed in the womb, he records in his book, every member is being registered, and what days they should be fashioned. So I recently built an ensuite shower facility in in one of our bedrooms at home. Not a lot to it, really. A few pipes, few wires and you're just getting the last bit of we call it plasterboard you call it sheetrock thank you proper name's plasterboard so we're, we're, uh, we're, I'm just putting the last piece of plasterboard up and I think oh Dullard you haven't put the piece of cable in that you need for the light over the mirror or something like this yeah I mean not a serious piece of project management can you imagine the project management for the formation of a body The big call today, isn't it? On time, on cost. And from the moment that a lady knows that this great miracle has happened in her womb, and she goes and she sees the doctor, and usually within a few days, it's pinpointed, in the normal course of events, round about this date, a child will be born. Nine months. Nine months to prepare the most, the most impossibly complex and wonderful of structures that this world can possibly know. And God is the project manager. And while that work is going on in your womb, dear sister, every one of the members of that unborn child, they're being recorded in a register in heaven, and God is actively managing it 
He's, he's even decreeing the very days that certain parts of that child are being formed. Isn't it wonderful, isn't it? And it's more wonderful when you think that that's how the Lord Jesus came into the world. God sent his son to be the savior of the world. And he did so through the virgin's womb. This is how the Lord Jesus was formed as far as his body was concerned. And so, I just jotted one or two little numbers here. I'll just tell you them and we'll soon be finished. Apparently, now I, I just use Google the way anyone else does. But apparently, the most complex machine that man has ever built is a space shuttle. And those space shuttles, they're now retired, of course, but those space shuttles built by NASA, they had some two and a half million separate components and about 250 miles of wiring. And you can imagine that once they built one of those things, once they built it, then the testing begins. And the testing has to iron out all the snags, and then once you've tested it and ironed out all the snags, you find that more snags have arisen, so you have to test it again. And so the whole project just keeps going on and on and on because this thing's got to work. And this child in the womb, I find this, I've double-checked this with, with, with uh, a pediatric consultant at home. I was thinking of Jeremiah 1, verse 5, before I formed thee in the belly I knew thee. This is God speaking to a man. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Listen. Sixty trillion cells. One hundred thousand miles of nerve fiber. Sixty thousand miles of blood vessels. And one day a man called Simeon held that little baby in his arms. He looked down as anybody would at this lovely child. He lifted his heart in worship and he said, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. God manifest in flesh. And you say, I could understand when the Savior came into the world that God would so carefully supervise the formation of the child in the womb of Mary. My dear brother, my dear sister, he did it for you as well. He did it for your children as well. And he'll do it for their children. What a God. What a God. Does this not cause us to worship? Oh, David, if you had taken us into the infinitude of space, we would have wondered. You've taken us into the silence of the womb and shown us how a child is formed and how that the divine hand is at work all the time. And to me, well, I just came back from Sussex Conference and there's a dear couple there and they have a young son in a wheelchair. He's missing three or four essential enzymes. So he's a very poor thing in a wheelchair. When you think of the complexity, isn't it marvelous that any of us work at all? And by and large, I speak sensitively in case it's maybe not the case with all here, but, but generally speaking, the child is brought into the world and there's a cry and you have a functioning body and that body's going to grow. There's nothing more going to be added to it. Tomorrow, God willing, we're going to think about a building. And a building, that's different. A building is incremental. More bricks, more stones, more wood, more this, more that. Not a body. You don't grow more arms, more legs. It's complete. It's complete at the very moment that it's born. And it's going to mature. And that's what Ephesians 4 is about. That's the church. It's a body. And it's growing up unto maturity. And when it's mature, it's going to be taken home to glory. And eternally united with its head 
which is Christ. And so the very order of things in creation demonstrates what God has in mind for the church. Christ, he says at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, I think that clock is wrong. It must be wrong. Um, But I'm reminded of a scripture that says, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. And I was told what time the meeting began, but I wasn't told a time at which it ended. So where there is no law, sin is not imputed. But then, now, I'm going to be told afterwards what time it should have finished. And once I know that, I am no longer ignorant, and ignorance is the ground of mercy. So if I do this tomorrow night, I'll be transgressing. So don't please be put off by the fact I've stolen some of your time tonight. We trust that the Lord will bless his word. And if you can come back tomorrow at 8 o'clock, we'll continue in looking at some of these uh, principles, creatorial principles, that are to do with the church of which you and I are a part and which is ultimately going to be for the praise of his glory. Thank you for listening. Shall we pray?